This is Season 3 of The Score, the Team Roping Journal's regular podcast where the team roping world talks. We've told the stories of some of the greatest cowboys, horses, and moments in the sport, and we're so far from done. In 2020, we'll bring you more of what you've come to expect, like interviews with the best cowboys and cowgirls we know, and we'll dive even deeper into subjects you care about. Look for more audio editions of the Team Roping Journal stories you might have missed in print, and learn about the great horses shaping the sport and great challenges facing our industry. All this and more in 2020. I'm Chelsea Schaefer. Hey everybody, welcome to The Score. I've waited for a while to do an interview on this podcast with Clay O'Brien Cooper. The seven-time world champion has almost $4 million in pro rodeo earnings, but it's been his steady demeanor paired with his monthly presence in the Team Roping Journal and our predecessor, Spin to Win, that made him one of the most beloved names in all of Team Roping. Champ is as even-keeled as it gets, and in times like these, when so little about life looks the same, Champ still does. And for that, I'm ever grateful. Please enjoy today's visit with Clay O'Brien Cooper as a reminder of all that's right and good with the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Manapro. At Manapro, they believe in nurturing life. Since 1985, Manapro has been committed to providing high-quality, wholesome feeds, supplements, and treats to your horses at every stage of their lives. Their passion is happy, healthy pets, and they're your trusted partners just for that. Well, good morning, sir. What are you up to this morning? Oh, it's a typical morning for me. Uh, <clears throat> have some coffee with my wife and listen to a uh, a Bible teaching uh, message for about mm-hmm. 30, 30 minutes or so. And then I go out and feed the horses and the cattle and maybe rope the dummy a few times and hit a few wiffle balls golf balls (laughs) and then uh come back in and start doing planning for whatever things i need to do today yeah now how many horses are you guys keeping around these days with a kind of a different rodeo schedule than the last 30 years or so i just have four yeah yeah. And are they colts? Are they green? Are they, what are you working on with them right now? I've got I've got a good horse that's real that's pretty solid that I got uh from Jake Barnes here about a month ago. Oh, cool. when I went to Arizona. Mm-hmm. So I sold the horse down there and I bought a horse and uh so that one is one that I could take and compete on. Mm-hmm. And then I have a six-year-old that I've been riding for a couple years that's just about ready to go to some jackpots. And then I have a uh, three-year-old mare that I bought the other day that I'm just starting on. And I've got a, the old horse LB that I, that's retired. What's LB's life look like these days? LB is very big and fat. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and but my wife rides him two or three times a week, just walks him around and and uh just cruises him around to keep him kinda exercised and so that's about sure. his routine. <laughs> sure. Now um speaking of horses, um I was looking at your I was just looking back through old articles and, and I was hoping you could tell me about Ike and where Ike came from and how how he came to be such a great one for you. Well, there is some real good friends uh, that I've known for years and years. Uh, even when I w- our families knew each other when I was a little kid. Uh, and their name is Ozzie and Judy Gillum. And they used to live in Oakdale and raise horses and roped. And when we would go to California in the springtime for rodeoing, Jake and I would stay at their place uh, for the for the whole month of April, basically. Mm-hmm. And we would rope and rodeo and and go back and forth and Ike uh, Ozzy sent Ike to me when he was four year old and I rode him one winter and sent him back and then every year after that I guess until he was nine when I would go to California in the spring I would rope on him practice on him and he would ask me what he needs to do different and Mm -hmm. what he needs to do better and this and that and so he'd have a whole year to work on him and by the time he was nine years old in I believe it was 92 uh, I crippled my good horse at Tucson and I was afoot and I was searching and thinking about horses and I thought, man, I've been riding that horse of Ozzy's out there <laughs> every year. And that horse felt really good the last time I rode him. So I called up Ozzy and said, hey, would you, would you sell Ike? I lost my good horse. And he, he said, I've been waiting for you to call. <laughs> and so that's where I got Ike. That's awesome. And what was, what set him apart from other horses that you've ridden over your career? You know, that horse was, he could really, really run. Mm -hmm. And then he was just a real natural stopper. So for the rodeos, uh, he was really good because he could really really get from the back of the box to the to the end of the corner there mm-hmm. without any problem and then when he got there he would just start sliding and stopping and it just had a real good smooth stop and it and he just <clears throat> fit my timing the way when he stopped he just knew right when I was bringing it and the way he fit into that into my throw with how he stopped just kind of fit real good and then what ended up happening he was just so tough and durable 
that he lasted uh, from 92 until, uh, I think I wrote him at the 2003 finals. Wow. So 11 years. That's a long time for a horse to be on the road. Heck yeah. And so I'm sure it was probably a combination of his breeding and then Ozzy spending all that time with him up until that point, too. Those, those are probably two great credits to to the horse. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any other Driftwood horses after, after Ike? Yeah, I traded horses back and forth with Ozzy for years. I mean, up until uh, recently. Mm -hmm. uh, so for years and years, I've I've had some of those those that line of horses off and on, mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah. Have they become your favorite, or do you have a favorite? bloodline to ride at this point or has it all just been individual horses that have ended up great yeah I never ran on to one with that caliber mm -hmm. out, of that, out of that line I mean you can I've had some pretty good ones but you know not not just the really great ones so uh and and to be fair, most of the ones that I would get would be young horses that I would go season and then and then uh, end up mm -hmm. usually selling them before I really got to rodeoing on them. Sure, because a good one would come along and I would buy him, and then I'd put him in the lineup, and then <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Through, through those years, I went through lots of horses. I mean, we had lots of horses because we roped a lot, and and you need a lot of a lot to ride, so you don't just burn them out. So, a lot of horses came and went through the years. Do you like the buying and selling of horses? You know, I think you either like trading horses or you don't. I, I, but I'm not saying you were a horse trader by any means. But do you like that? that activity and that process? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I kind of do. I mean, it's just kind of part of the <clears throat> part of the process and part of what you do as a, as a full-time rodeo guy, roper that ropes for a living is you just, you're constantly looking for, good horses and and trying to buy them and then on the other end of it then and you know you sell them and you buy them and you sell them and you buy them and it just kind of is a revolving door really have you ever sold one um that you regret selling that that ended up like man if you'd had that one you'd have won one more world title or that anyone that ever became just great after you owned it yeah, I've sold several that I wished I wouldn't have sold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that um, were just really good horses. I sold them because they were kind of getting some age on them. Mm -hmm. And then 
after I sold them, those the guys I sold them to rode them for four, five, six, seven years. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, my goodness, I should have kept that horse, you know, <laughs> just sure so there's been there's been three or four or five like that that i in hindsight i wished i would have kept but i was i got a good price for what i thought and it, for the age and you know you just those are decisions that you make yeah turned out to be a smoking deal in the long run for whoever bought the horse huh? <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Now, one of my favorite topics on this podcast is I always ask ropers to take me back to their arena as a kid, to their practice pen with their parents as a kid. And you and I have done stories over the years where you've we've referenced it, but I feel like I would love to hear you describe to me your arena as a kid and who was there? What did the practices look like? I, I think like it would be such a cool book to talk about everybody you should write a book about growing up where you did and how you did so could you tell me a little bit about what your arena was like when you were learning to rope there in California well we lived in Selmar California which is a suburb of LA Mm -hmm. the San Fernando Valley and my uh, dad or our family ran a jackpot roping on the weekends and so our arena was was a commercial roping arena basically and And it was dally team roping back then team yeah dally team dally team roping okay dally team roping (laughs) and my brother sam he's six years older than me he he roped he would rope both ends and i would i started out heading so i headed and he healed and my dad headed my mom healed and then we had you know friends of the family that were always coming to the ropings and always hanging around and and they would come rope and uh so it was just kind of a lot of different characters of people and and the family and then the kids that came and helped and worked it was just kind of a my dad was a was a real character so he uh just an old school cowboy guy but a real communicator i mean he was unique and so he had a cast of characters around him that were <laughs> just just as wild and unique as him. <laughs> and what did your dad do for a living? My dad did everything. He worked in the mm-hmm. motion picture business as a wrangler mm-hmm. on the weekdays. Uh, before that, he shod horses for a living. He ran the, ran the roping. He traded horses. He... Mm-hmm. traded cattle he i mean we had uh we had a milk a milk cow we had <laughs> chickens we uh had butcher goats we had uh always had a, a butcher steer i mean we were kind of like we lived off the land in the little farm in the middle of los angeles <laughs> <laughs> yep, <exactly. laughs> that's awesome now your dad's 
foray into the motion picture business, that left him with some very interesting friends, right? That would come over to rope. There were some celebrities that would swing by from time to time. Yeah, a lot of people in the motion picture business came to our ropings, a lot of the stunt people and actors and mm -hmm. people that worked in the motion picture business. That was probably half of our clientele of ropers <clears throat> that came on the weekends. That would be so cool. I think at one point you had maybe told me there were like old videotapes of those arena of those days in the arena. Are there like old pictures from from those times that, yeah. that you look back on every once in a while? I thought that would be so neat to see. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, very cool. And so, I, of course, on that subject, I, I know every time back when Kendra and I both were working for American Cowboy Magazine and we, and we would do all those John Wayne special issues, we would have to call you and you would have to give us a quote about working um, in the Cowboys. How, but I, I think on the podcast, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it because because folks absolutely admire you for that experience. Could you tell me, like, how did you get involved with that and how, how did that transpire? And what was the experience like? Well, <clears throat> when they were trying to set up the producers and were trying to set up how they were going to do the Cowboys, they had... 11 actor kid roles mm -hmm. and they decided that they wanted to blend the kids uh, as half of them being Hollywood actor kids and then half of them being real cowboy kids and then also use the cow use cowboy kids as uh, for the stunt double uh, parts and stand-in parts as well. So when that word got out, then the producers asked my dad if he could gather together from that region as many cowboy kid uh, from the junior rodeos and the, ro and the jackpot ropings and stuff as he could. And the producers could come out and look at them and watch them ride and rope and do their thing and pick some, pick the ones that they thought would possibly be good for the parts that they were trying to fill. And, mm -hmm. and so that's what they did. And so there was a number of us that got picked to go in and read for the parts and and then some of us got chosen and uh, for the actor roles and some some got chosen for the double stand-in parts and that's how that's how they <laughs> was it that. something was it something that like i know kids maybe can't understand like the gravity of a situation but was it something that you were excited for that you were nervous about or was it just something that you know, you were so used to being around actors and act every day anyway that it was no big deal. So how did you feel about it? Yeah, I, I was the littlest one. I mean, I was nine years old at the time, but I fully knew what was going on and the kind of the gravity of the situation. So, yeah, I was kind of excited and nervous and 
you know, wondering if I would be picked. I had to go in and read like three separate separate times to uh, to try out for it. And so, you know, each time you go in and you're given a script and you you're given up 10, 15, 20 minutes to kind of learn the lines and then you have to go in cold turkey and sit across from a producer or mm-hmm. a director and they read the other part and then you have to deliver the lines and act it out as if you were in the scene <laughs> and those and i had to do that a lot uh in five years mm-hmm. after, the, after that but that was the first time i'd encountered doing that trying out for part for a part and it's not an easy thing to do it's a little unsettling but Sure. It, it is what it is. You just go in, you try to learn the lines as fast as you can, and then you try to deliver them as best you can, and <laughs> you either get it or you don't. At what point did you decide? Tell me about the decision between rodeo and acting. When did that decision happen? And was it an easy decision, or was there any decision to make it all? Oh, not really, because I worked from nine until I was 15. And when I I was small for my age, I was always the littlest one in my class. And I was just kind of a little midget kid. <laughs> and uh, but when I turned 15, I grew a foot. Mm-hmm. And so and my voice changed. Mm hmm. And so I went from a little kid to this gangly, (laughs) pimple-faced, you know, in-between gawky, you know, (laughs) interim between child and manhood. And, And at that stage, you're not, your career is kind of done until you mature because... Mm -hmm. You know, having kids, working kids and kids parts is for the studio or uh, production is not that great because kids have to have welfare worker. You got to have a welfare worker, teacher. Mm-hmm. You can only work so many hours a day and you and you have to have so much schooling a day. There's all these parameters that they have to deal with that when there are parts of you know 15 16 17 year old uh aged parts in movies then they get they get kids that are 18 19 20 years old that are out of school that are that look like they're that age mm-hmm. and they yeah. don't have to mess with the welfare worker and all the things all the hoops they got to jump through to- <laughs> <laughs> so, sure So my deal was basically going to be done. I could have went into, I mean, I could have hung around and and did, uh, worked as a stunt kid or something like that. And and then eventually maybe, you know, got some, uh, competed for some parts and maybe stayed in it. But my, my heart was not there. I had worked. I mean, it was work for me uh, just to make money, and it was kind of a 
for a kid, it's kind of a pain in the butt to have to work from nine years old to 15 years old, steady. And yeah. And I was, I was wanting to rope. I was wanting to go do that. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was fine yeah. for me that my decision was, uh, so at 15, you know, I'm thinking about that. And at 16, I know that I'm gone because mm-hmm. I get my driver's license. That's freedom. And that's when you went to Arizona, right? Or did you wait till you were 18 to go to Arizona? No. In fact, I got my, I got my driver's license on my birthday and drove to San Diego and bought my truck. <laughs> I bought a little half uh, shell camper thing that just had a bed in it. And I bought me a two-horse trailer. <laughs> and when school was out on, I think it was the end of May or something, I had a, I took off for Arizona. I had some buddies over there and, and they were having ropings and jackpots and, and I went to, I went and stayed with my real dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who we've been talking about is my stepdad. Gene O'Brien was your stepdad, right? Right. So I went okay. to stay with my real dad and my stepmom in Northern Arizona and jackpot and rodeo, jack, uh, amateur rodeo all summer. Mm-hmm. So Did yeah, you? I was, I was gone. <laughs> We're going to take a break from this interview to talk about Cetal M, the joint health supplement. Champions, colleagues, and personal trainers, whatever role they play, they're an important part of our lives. And as much as we count on them, they count on us all the more. Cetal M Joint Supplements for Horses is a new approach to joint health. Powered by omega-5 fatty acids, which helps maintain healthy joints by reducing inflammation and promoting positive immune response. Cetal M uses an optimal blend of plant-derived cetal meristoliate, glucosamine, and MSM for superior results. Visit scorejointhealth.com for your $10 off coupon. For tough rides and long hauls, they're here to make your horses' lives the best they can be. Manapro, nurturing life. Remember, it's scorejointhealth.com for a $10 off coupon. Were you cocky when you were 16 and 17 and off on your own? Were you, were you conf- like real confident and real proud back then? You know... I don't know. I guess that's a matter <laughs> of perspective. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, but that's, a, you know, that's a subject that, that I kind of learned. That's a principle for me that I kind of learned early. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of during the time, like what you're talking about when you're getting your freedom and you're yeah. about, I did some things and, but you get your head handed to you. That's what I found out. When you get cocky and you you you're pretty full of yourself, then it somewhere along the line you get it handed to you in one way or another, and it kind of, <laughs> which is a good thing. <laughs> you learn to kind of tone it down a little bit. Sure, that was back when like Leo and Gerald, right? Like who 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 put you in your place or who thing against whom? put you in your place 
You know, more than anything, my own conscience did. I see. Uh-huh. I just, I don't know, there was just kind of, my own conscience would tell me, you know, that you don't need to talk like that, or you don't need to say that, or you don't need to act like that, or, and so I would just, my own conscience kind of held me, kind of taught me, which has been a, you know, a progression through the years. You don't ever stop learning, but. Sure. I was still pretty wild until I was about 25. And then, mm-hmm. and then uh, I think like everyone, when you get a family, you have your first child, you have your responsibility of putting a roof over your family's head and the responsibilities of life start to accumulate it makes you look at the world differently and you start to realize that your parents, things that they said and the things that they tried to teach you, Oh, wow. They were right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Your rookie year was 1981. How old were you? 20. 20. Who did you, so you made, you made the, Oh, no, your rookie year was 1979, and you were 20. And you made your first finals in 81. What was the learning curve between 79 and 81? What what, actually, what did you have to work on? Actually, I, I got my card in 79, but I didn't rodeo. I just had it gotcha. at the, uh, the end of the year. A guy asked me, Brian Burroughs, asked me to go to some fall rodeos and so I filled my permit quick and then I I got my car just to go to like Albuquerque and and some fall rodeos in California but I turned my card back and still amateured so I went for about two months just because he needed a partner Mm-hmm. For the end of that year, and dumb me, I didn't realize I screwed my rookie deal up. <laughs> but yeah. I, just, uh, I was just excited to get to go rope with a real good roper. Brian, Brian Burroughs was like a, you know, a cool that- cat spinning, yeah. spinning Mo Dinker. So. Was that when he had that cool mare? He yeah. had that great horse, right? Yeah. Yeah, Myrtle. Myrtle, yes, I remember. I, yeah, I talked I to so I actually didn't really get my card till 81 with Brett Beach 81. to go to rodeo with the with the uh-huh. intention of going all year and trying to make the finals. And you didn't have a family then, so it was like young rodeo cowboy fun in 81, or was it serious in the rig with Brett Beach at the time? I thought it was serious because we uh. <laughs> We had jackpotted and amateured for three or four years together, making just making a living. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it was time for us to move up because we had we had pretty much dominated the the California, the jackpots everywhere: Arizona, California, mm-hmm. New Mexico, and we knew we were or we thought we were ready for the big time. So we got our cards and joined up and away we went. That first finals in 81, I'm 
the PRCA's, I'm just looking at their website and they don't have like the full results of the finals that year. Did you have a good finals at your first, at your first time or, or was it rough? No, I don't think we had a very good finals. I think we might've placed a couple times, mm -hmm. but we were running over ourselves and, and, <laughs> uh, we were, we were having too good to probably too much of a good time as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now I want to talk a little bit about partners because you've had pretty much, it seems like when I look back through your history, you've roped with all the greats over the years. And I know we've done stories on what makes a great partnership, but they were so, they're also different. Is there a partner that you had the most fun with? Can you say a partner that was the most fun? You know, all of them were fun. I'm sure in different ways, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, just the relationships, you know, and, yeah. and when you go into battle with somebody, there's a, you kind of form a, a, a unique bond in one mm -hmm. way or another, and so each one of those partnerships were were good and uh, i had fun with you know traveling and and roping and preparing and practicing and winning and uh with every one of them i love all the Back when you were traveling with Chad and Caleb and Jade, that partnership with all with all of you guys seems like such a riot to me in just all the different dynamics that would have been in the rig at the time. You've roped with a lot of young guys over the last decade, I guess. Do you like that role as like the the sensei in the rig or the the mentor? Or do you just kind of stay quiet and let them be young kids and not give much advice no i i just tried to be me i mean i don't really offer advice and until you know you start kind of breaking it down and the other person mm -hmm. opens up and then you feel like you're able to say something or or kind mm -hmm. of give your perspective i mean it's just kind of a judgment so i don't try to kind of throw my weight around because I've been around really I mean because <laughs> I don't want to be perceived that way and actually my opinion you know what do I know my opinion is just my opinion it you know I do things because it works for me but it doesn't not everybody has to do it that way I mean sure there's there's lots of different ways to, and I like learning too. So I don't like to cut off the avenue of the opportunity to get feedback from, because what I found, what was interesting to me is once you get on the other side of that is that the young guys have, and I learned that with speed. I think that was the first time that I was kind of on the other side of the equation a little bit where mm -hmm. I was the senior partner and and what I what I found is is he had some great insight on on 
all the intangibles of of rope and and I realized, man, I could learn. I can learn some things. <clears throat> and so I started to look at it that way. So it was fun mm-hmm. to me. I just thought I was one of the guys, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With Jade and Caleb and and I know they looked at me as kind of the senior guy and I've been around and we had conversations with that. What was it like back in the day? And you know, telling about the great ropers, you know, the Leo and Gerald and Danny Watkins and Ricky Green and and mm-hmm. you know all those guys leading up to time, uh, Bobby Harris and T. Woolman and and so that's fun, you know, being able to tell them what it was like because rodeo and was way different way when I sure I mean, yeah. Were, we went to 125 rodeos, not 65. I mean, it was yeah. like we chartered everywhere we went in airplanes. And the majority of the rodeos we went to were 500 added, not 10,000 added. And, yeah. Uh, and so it was just, it was a whole different way of doing it. But it was so different. The, yeah. the competing hasn't changed. I mean, in the, but we did uh, with Chad and Caleb and Jade. We had kind of a unique year because they kicked butt all year long. I mean, they and then Chad and I got it going pretty good, uh, starting in the fourth of Fourth of July, and then we we rolled up there behind them, and then so we were number one and two teams just, and we were pulling for each other and 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 pushing for each other and and. I mean, when we hooked up, it's like we got it rolling as as a buddy team, and it was fun. Yeah, and man, the way that year finished up, that was that was something. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was that split title was was something else for sure. Um, you said about how things have changed. How how do you attribute? Like rodeo and amateur team roping are so separate, but so intertwined sometimes. How do you look at like the explosion of the recreational team roping market with the USTRC, then with the World Series? How has that affected your ability to make money in this sport? When the USTRC came in, it changed the equation and it really brought about the explosion of of team roping and it was right at the time that Jake and I was was getting kicked off and starting to dominate Mm -hmm. in our seven year run there and so it all kind of went hand in hand it because team roping got so popular and then we were at the forefront of you know we were doing schools and we were traveling so hard and 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 making our names and getting the notoriety Mm -hmm. of what we were accomplishing it it really uh it really helped us as far as our uh popularity yeah yeah and kind of, kind of 
was the the build the the building blocks of making making us icons, so to speak, which the team rope world had never really had to that level. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was you know before us was the Camarillos, and to me, I mean, I was all into it, but I mean, I'm sure that there was just it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't like a population team rope and population explosion back then but when the USTRC came in just and then the 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 newspapers the the spin to win the which turns into the journal you know all of that started evolving right kind of right in that era which just kind of yeah go crazy and yeah it has so been. It's been good and it's just been building ever since mm-hmm. so then you had you know, the speed and rich dynasty. And then you've had, you know, Jade and Clay and, uh, you know, it's just kind of kept going. And then with the USDRC coming in and it just keeps, it just keeps like it's expounding and getting larger and larger and more popular. And, and, but with that, the competition has gotten, better as well and the information age with the with the uh, mm-hmm. our cell phones and our videoing abilities and our studying and youtube and te- uh, you know everything online the information and the access to watching good roping and, and learning how to do it has exploded as well so yeah now do you have um do you have what are your goals for the rest of your time in the sport of team roping. I mean, I know you guys have scaled back a little bit as much as your, you know, the rodeo schedule. Do you think there will be a, another comeback in this new decade? Are you looking to maybe if, if, if the right horse, the right partner comes around? You know, uh, I don't really see myself going out there full-time hard Um, Mm -hmm. unless unless something on the inside of me just ignited again but it's not there right now I mean Mm -hmm. I'm content I'm content doing things the way I'm doing them we're doing lots of schools Mm -hmm. and that's good good money and I like doing them and teaching and and then I like being home and working with my horses and I like practicing and, and just doing things at that pace. But I also want to compete a little bit here and there mm-hmm. and I'm always working on my roping. So I don't know, like you said, I'm <laughs> just the right horse and combination and yeah, I guess if I felt like I could go out there and really, uh, have a chance to do, you know, win good, then maybe that fire would ignite. But until I get that, that feeling that, that I wouldn't want to be out there full time. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. enjoy going and competing here and there, but then I like coming back home and working on it and, and, uh, doing it that way have there been any 
great disappointments of your career moments. You know, I think of maybe looking back that you just sure wish would have gone another way, like that steer in Pendleton when your horse fell, anything like that. That was that's just a great disappointment over the last 30 years. Oh, not really. I mean, I think, you know, roping and competing and is like life. I mean, there's going to be bumps in the road and there's going to be challenges and things that Mm -hmm. you have to overcome. That's just part of life. That's what makes you, you know, early on, you know, failure and adversity is what made me, you know, bear down and and try to figure it out harder and try to press in towards the goal even harder. So, you know, the best, what they say, the best army is the one that's fought some battles. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> that's 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 the lesson of life so i don't regret really anything i mean i've had some disappointments but that's that's part of it you can't yeah. win every time you can't be successful every single time mm-hmm. and if you did if you were if that was the way it was you wouldn't appreciate it it wouldn't be any fun i mean the challenge is because it's hard mm-hmm so mm-hmm. <laughs> that's part of the equation so I don't have really uh, any regrets I mean there's pl- there's times I wished I wouldn't have missed and I wished I wouldn't have maybe went in with the wrong mindset and the wrong game plan and this and that but I mean at the time you're going in with the, with what you think is best and that's the decision you make and mm-hmm then then the outcome might tell you something different. And so then you've got to try to change it up and do better next time. Absolutely, sir. Well, I am so grateful for your time today, Clay. And I absolutely hope you guys are staying healthy. You're staying well, staying home and all that stuff right about now. So, Yeah, it's all good. I appreciate <laughs> talking to you. Good talking to you, Clay. Thank you. Uh-huh, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Score. Thanks to Champ for making the time for us today. And thanks again to our sponsors at ManaPro. ManaPro is a recognized leader in the care and nurturing of pets with roots back to 1842 and long-established brands in companion pet, equine, backyard chicken, and small animal categories. ManaPro's product is Cetal M, and you can check that out at scorejointhealth.com.